take your Bible, phone, whatever you're using. Uh, it's great to have everybody here. We are gonna, and I love to be able to say we're going to continue a study uh, instead of starting something new. We've already started a foundation last week to begin to start to understand uh, the importance of this book. Now, in the section before us today, what we're going to find is the, the focus of the title that I have given to it is the power of praise and prayer, which is really uh, Paul's heart of unity on display. When you and I begin to think about what Paul does throughout the book of Philippians, it is, it is this constant joy of ours to watch him and, and watch his heart be unfolded out before us and say, that's what I want to do. That's the kind of heart that I want to have. That's the kind of heart that will give a sense of unity and, and camaraderie within the body. Let me give you a couple, as we, a couple of resources as we start, and perhaps, uh, you know, as you walk through your various devotions, a couple of friends of mine who have, who have written a couple of books uh, uh, that I really think would be helpful as you walk through and begin to think about the subject of unity. This is the first book. It's called 31 Ways to One Another. I don't know if you guys can switch that. Uh, 31 Ways of One Anothering. Stuart Scott, who's a master's university professor, uh, wrote this book is one of his newest books that he had written and it's, it's a daily dose of one anothering is what I want to call it it's a daily dose of it and so you can add something very very simple this is a family devotional tool really get a hold of this I think it would really be a, a blessing to you and the other one is by another friend of mine who's a pastor in Ohio uh, that's called pray about everything learning more about God dependence and see that's exactly what goes on in the in Paul's life before us and that is put on display this morning now let, let me remind us of the key verse as we walk through this again so don't you will hopefully not tire of hearing this verse but I do think it lays before us uh, this this very important theme in verse number 27 have your eyes go ahead and look down to there here's what Paul says only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and I see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. See, the reality is, is we even start a study like this, desiring a sense of unity, but is a call to live a life that is worthy. And I think it just begs the question for each and every one of us, since even last week, if you had to look back at your last week, did you live a life that was worthy and honorable in him? No matter if anyone else saw it, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you knew he was watching. Was it worthy? Did you stand firm? See, that is the constant call for an individual that desires unity is to not be complacent from week to week as we come back before the Lord, not just in a corporate body, but individually as we go before him and simply ask, what is my life's purpose? That one life's purpose that you and I hold so dear is to live that life in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And I hope that it's been said, even of, over the course of this week, that someone looked at your faith and said, wow, that's amazing. It is amazing that God would have changed this person to be from, like, from being this kind of individual now to being like this. You hear that in baptism testimonies, don't you? I love that portion. 
here's who I was, but here's who I am now. That is exactly what it's like to be a worthy Christian. You start forsaking things that you used to love and you used to enjoy, and you start embracing the things with a different kind of love, with a deeper-seated joy. And what Paul does for us as he lays open this perspective all throughout the book of Philippians is to go back time and time again to refocus us on saying, are we living the life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I hope as you ask yourself that question this morning, you would give an answer of yes to that. But I'll tell you, not only Christianity is not some isolated idea that somehow we just go and do separately, but as Paul continues to embrace in the book of Philippians, is that this is a corporate idea. It's, it's, you will have it corporately to the degree that your heart longs for it individually. You can't just say, uh, I, I don't really want anything to do with unity or keeping my heart protected from all the things of the world and then imagine that you're going to come on any given Sunday and experience this elaborate, joyful, other-centeredness when you are consumed with yourself. It will not happen. And see, Paul's prayer, as he begins in a normal kind of way that, that these ancient letters were written, he begins to tweak the way that they were done and he begins to start saying let me tell you a little bit about the way that I pray let me tell you a little bit what I'm petitioning for you let me tell you how thankful I am in all the ways that that, that God would be glorified and I want to say uh, for us this morning don't we want to be an, an uncommon community we do but you know what's going to take it's going to take for us to be uncommon people See, if we want to be a community of people that, that people looks at, look at in the world and go, there's just something different about those chapel people. You might be thinking, you're like, they already say that. <laughs> I hope it's for the good ways. But the reality is, is if we long to be part of an uncommon community that is filled with Christ-likeness, then we must commit to being an uncommon person with an uncommon heart that is not a fleshly heart. A heart that sometimes is often prone to go your own way. It's a person who is so attentive to the unity of their life and union with Christ that it begins to spill over into their unity and their life with others. If that can't be said about the chapel or about any one of us individually, as we will continue to say, we are doing something absolutely wrong. Because our faith has to be put on display and I love how Paul does it in the text before us. And so our main idea this morning as we walk through this text, text this morning is, is how praise and prayer are these powerful ways of displaying this heart of unity that Paul gives to us. And he's going to reveal three different elements of this heart attitude of unity this morning. Let's start with the very first one. Notice this emphasis that Paul gives. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, for, for, for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Have you ever thought about this question? What makes thankfulness so important? Have you ever tried to live a very thankless life? What happens to a person's whose person whose heart 
begins to be fixated on all the things they wish they had. You know what they become like? They become like a person who is so filled with covetousness and jealousy from everyone else who's around them, they feel like they've always gotten to get really dealt the wrong set of cards, the, the wrong situation in life, and you know what happens to their hard attitude? It starts to get bitter. I've seen people live lives, years, decades of levels of bitterness at people or parents or circumstances that God has allowed into their life, and all of a sudden, they begin to start allowing it to affect their vertical disposition towards God, and they begin to say this. And they thought they would never say it. God, why did you do this to me? You have ruined my life. I now live a joyless life and you are the reason. You know, the reality is most Christians never would really want to actually say that openly to another Christian. But in our heart sometimes, that if you're not careful, we can become an individual who is absolutely thankless. One of the areas where we can see a thankful spirit will often begin to generate is when we pray. And Paul says to about these believers, I thank my God for you. See, here's one of the things that happens almost immediately if, a, if an individual begins to have a thankless spirit, is that they begin to have a really toxic view of other people. All of a sudden, they begin to think, you know what? I don't really like to be around people. And then the whole idea of the body life and unity and embracing union with Christ really just tails off and goes off into nowhere. And yet they're frustrated because they know something should, should be of greater value. Look at what Paul does in his prayer as he begins to, to reshape this vertical focus. I thank my God. Here's what he's, the language is so specific in how he says this. I'm deliberate I'm active in doing it, and it's constantly going on. That's what he's saying. I have to make a personal choice to be a thankful person when I think about other people. Now, sometimes it's challenging when we think about our perspective of other people, because if you haven't noticed this as of recent, some people you're super thankful for, then other people you're kind of like middle of the road thankful for, and then there are other people you're like, yeah, I guess I'll have to be thankful for. Like you have those people, okay? Because our mindset, some goes, well, it's easy to love the people who are more lovable. It's less desirable to, to love people and be thankful for them when they are less desirable. See, what Paul is trying to dis put on display is his heart just starts to flow out because his deep-seated appreciation for the Philippian believers and their partnership in the gospel, he couldn't help it. He had to be thankful, and he knew that it wasn't just because they were who they were. It was because there was a God who did something for these believers, and he said, you couldn't have done this for yourself, and there's something that I'm so incredibly thankful for. See, the reality is, is that whether your, your gratitude and your thankfulness impacts your attitude. If you can't stand coming to a body of believers where you want to grow in Christ and you want to serve together, you want to be united in the union of Jesus Christ, then the whole idea of corporate assembly is tainted. The whole concept of standing as one united body singing, behold our God, means nothing if you can't have love for God and love for your neighbor. 
See, the reality is, is this vertical focus reveals whether or not you have a heart of thankfulness and a heart of gratitude. But you notice this. He says, I thank my God for you. You notice this personal, personal dimension that Paul always seemed to put on display with people. Don't you like that when all of a sudden you go out to the mailbox? In this case, it used to be the mailbox, but now it's your inbox. Some of you are still getting mail in the mailbox. And you go out there and then somebody out of their good nature of their heart, their good disposition, just put you a thank you letter in your mailbox and just said, you know what, I've been, I've been so thankful for the way that you have lived your life of faith, that way you're, you're devoted to Jesus Christ, and I just wanted to let you know how thankful I am. Anyway, that's what the way the Philippian believers would have felt like when they heard this letter read in the open assembly. I mean, imagine when, when, when this letter came back, and you, know, you can imagine the whole body gathered to some degree in likely Lydia's household, and then they're reading this letter like, <laughs> it's us, he loves us. We love him. There's something incredible, man, but he's in prison. I mean, think about this perspective. Paul is in the midst of a suffering situation in his life, and he pulls himself away for the betterment of a community of people to say something to them of, of an affectional nature to say, I am so thankful for you. You know, this really teaches us something, I think, when we, when we consider the idea and aspect of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is so difficult at times because we're so consumed with everything that goes on in our life. And I don't know what everyone's situation is. I don't know what you might be going through, but I can tell you this, <clears throat> that whatever it happens to be, it's likely as difficult as what, as what Paul was going through being in a, in a Roman prison not being able to get out, not being able to do exactly what he wanted to do or what he thought he should do. He was in the place where God wanted him to be. It was hard for him, and he could have sat there, he could have sulked, he could have got sour, and he didn't. How did he do it? Because his heart attitude, when he spent time before the Lord and all the churches and people that God had allowed his past to cross, his heart became so filled with thankfulness. I mean, I, I just kind of imagine the Apostle Paul kind of forgetting to some degree that he's absolutely in prison. Like, oh yeah, I'm still sharing the gospel. I'm still enjoying people. I mean, you get to the end of the letter and he's talking about the whole of Roman, the Caesar's household. I mean, he did not miss a beat in his purpose or his desire to stand firm in the faith because partly his, his heart attitude was so fixed on being thankful of what God could only do. Are you that kind of person? Can you even make it a point in your Christian walk in the midst of your suffering to step away from your suffering and your challenges, your marital strife, your difficulties, your parenting, and all of a sudden go, okay, what are your struggles? How can I bear burdens with you? You know what, enough about me. What about you? And that is what Paul was so enamored with when we begin to think about his life. Is that we have a man who in the midst of suffering could pull himself away, living by the Spirit of God, and then endowed by this incredible vertical relationship, he could say, I thank my God for you. Now, isn't this an amazing thought? 
Do you realize that Jesus Christ, who adopted us into his family, who we weren't supposed to be part of his family, he is thankful that you are part of his family. I'll tell you what that does to me. It just destroys me inside. Like, I have no right to be here. I have no worthiness in and of myself. I have no righteousness of my own. I was a sinner destitute to hell. Apart from, the, from a loving Savior who would draw me by his spirit, call me to a faith and repentance, to call me his own as an adopted child, what else can we do other than to be thankful to this God? There's nothing else we should do. And when we begin to think about the multiplicity of scenarios that occurs over here and over here and over here and over here and over here, he's done it again and again and again. How can we not come together and sing Behold Our God with the most thankful spirit, reminding ourselves of the multiplicity of generations upon generations and those to come who we stand together in one united voice as the as, the, as revelations would say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You ought to leave a Sunday morning going, these are my brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have faces in your mind as you pray, as you come before the Lord in your personal time saying, I'm thankful for this person. I'm thankful for that person. I'm thankful for this child. I'm thankful for this individual's testimony in baptism. We have to get good at being thankful people. And I'm afraid at times in our own Christian walk, in a culture that is so intoxicated with self-orientation, that it's hard for us to be thankful for other people because we're so desirous to have the things that I want to have. And then, once I get them, then I can be thankful for all the things that I get that I want. Paul displays this attitude in such a remarkable way to draw to an help us come to an understanding that it's people that ought to come to your mind. It's not just, God, oh, I'm so thankful for this car. I've been waiting all my life to be able to get this. Or I'm so thankful for this pair of designer clothes or designer shoes or whatever it happens to be. It is people See, Paul was not just saying, oh, Lydia, I'm so thankful for the location of the house, that it's big enough so everybody can fit there. No, it was people. See, here's the problem is we, we get so infatuated with ourselves at times that we forget that the church is about people. We think it would be great if, every, if the people weren't there. I've even heard pastors lament at various different times. Ministry would be so great if it wasn't for those stinking people. What are we going to do? What do we do is to have a heart attitude that is changed, that's filled with gratitude so that we can see what God is doing in the midst of the people so that we can get on board with thanking him for the people. Because you know what? That's what the church is. It's people. People whose lives have been transformed because the alternative is worse. Could you imagine just sitting there thinking, about everybody in the body and thinking about all their shortcomings? I mean, what I've watched this happen in lives of marriages over the years as I've cared for people in different settings as a pastor. And they will come in and all of a sudden they'll say, I just don't, I don't, I just fell out of love with them. I just fell out of love with her. 
Like, we live in a culture where sometimes now all of a sudden it's like I fall, we think we fall into it and we fall out of it like it's just this, you know, simple thing. It's because all of a sudden their heart attitude, and I'll, I'll begin to rehearse various stories of the life of the, life of the couple or the, or, or, the, or the friendships, and especially in marriages I've seen this. They think, oh, every time they come home, I'm just, I'm just dreading the thought of them being there. It hits about 4.30, and I know that they're coming home, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, they're almost here. Hopefully you're not thinking that about your spouse. But I've watched it. It's devastating. To be able to say, you're so consumed with a level of bitterness and thanklessness because all that you can focus on is the shortcomings of other people. And by the way, if we, if we really had to focus on all of our shortcomings, well, we would need a couple of services to be able to work that out. Okay? Because the reality is, is every single one of us, whether it's a husband or a wife or a child or a friend, we have shortcomings. I have them. You have them. You're just starting to get to know mine. And you're like, oh, I'm writing these down. I will send you a thank you later. Love those thank you notes as a pastor. But the reality is for us, if we want to have a heart, if we want to have a community that is uncommon and be an uncommon person, it has to start with where, where our own thankfulness resides. And that's exactly where Paul displays it in this book. I thank my God on remembrance of you. You mean so much to me. Notice he doesn't just stop there. He's, he continues to go on in, in this particular perspective. He says, always in every prayer of mine. Now, don't get the picture all of a sudden that somehow the language is saying Paul was on his knees night and day and every 24-7 he was just praying for these Philippian believers. What he was saying is, he's saying, when I prayed for this church and this community of people, all of these things so readily flowed into my mind and when I began to think, now think of what he would be thinking about. In remembrance of what? Oh man, I remember when I first walked up to that shore of, of ladies and I wanted to be able to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ and there was no synagogue in town and, and, and Paul and, and, and Silas were thinking, what are we going to do now? And let's just go down by the river, maybe we can find somebody there. And there you were, in faithfulness to God, serving the God of heaven and God providentially put us together. That's why I love the community of believers so much. It's like God desired to, to put uh, a whole bunch of people who are misfits on display as they work in unity together. Like, how does he take people from all various walks of life, all various backgrounds, all various ethnicities, and he puts them in a room and they sing, Behold Our God? Only God can do something like that. And when they're, as he continued to remember, I mean, think, oh, I remember when I cast that demon out of that little slave girl. And I debunked all their wealth and prosperity that was coming to her because the gospel overtook this little gal's life. And now she's put on display in that community. You know, that could be said of so many different stories if we went around the room and saw how God puts people on display for his glory. It's people, when he thought of them, he made mention of them in your prayers. Do you do that with people? 
And one of the, one of the things I've desperately uh, just, I just, I found it so helpful as I've rubbed shoulders with uh, older individuals in the church. And I'm just going to say it blandly, so if you classify yourself in that category, but especially the, those who are elderly. Because they would often say to me, you know, Pastor, uh, I just can't sleep anymore. I wake up off and on all through the night, and they said, you know what I do? I pray. I mean, I learned so many lessons from people who at times now, you know what happens when I wake up at night? Now that I'm getting older, the first thing that comes to my mind is, okay, who am I going to pray for? And sometimes when, when I'm there and I can think about individual people, I can say, God, thank you for them. God, thank you for them. God, thank you for them. God, help them, strengthen them, help them to walk worthy. That's what the body of believers do for each other, and they don't even know it when it's happening. It's the support of the body whose heart longs to be united and together. But they do it with joy. I mean, you, it just, you can't say, I'm going to be thankful, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Like, it just doesn't work, does it? I bet you probably don't really meet thankful, joyless people. It just, it's opposite. It's like an oxymoron. You don't see that because thankful people are typically joy-filled. And Christian people have all the reason in the world to be filled with joy, which means they have all the reason in the world to be thankful. The most thankful people on the face of the planet. Because we've been redeemed. We've been given a status that didn't belong to us. He says... Here's the content of what I'm so thankful about. He says, I'm so thankful about your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I love it how as he represents this attitude of remembering, he uses this Greek word that I just, it's, it's so common in the New Testament. We always translate it fellowship. This word koinonia, this idea of partnership, camaraderie. It's often said of marriages and in churches in the New Testament. We are, as a body, partners in Christ. The way Paul was a partner with the Philippian church. We partner together, we fellowship with fervent joy and thanksgiving when we can say, why do we do this? Because we care about each other. There's something so uncommon in the world about a John 13, 35 that says, they will know you by what? Their Love. Yes, I'm, okay, don't get me wrong. I'm not with this idea of some sentimentality. Although we just mushy-gushy think, oh, that's the church that really loves people in a really weird way. No. We're all for doctrinal soundness, exposition, but all of that has to go somewhere. If all, of you have, if all that you have is a whole bunch of pent-up intellectualism, you get Nothing. Information and revelation is always for the sake of transformation. I don't care what age you are. I don't care how young you are. You have to be asking yourself, how is the revelation that I'm reading transforming me into the likeness of his son? If you fail to ask that question, you don't ask the applicational questions about how, how a heart can be filled with thankfulness. Because Paul got there because of the way that he thought. See, if you think to yourself and you say, you know what, 
I really need some work in this area of thanksgiving. You should be asking the question, well, how do I do that? Is it just like wishful thinking? Like, oh, I'll just be like, I'm so happy to go to church, and yet inside I'm like, I'm still struggling with that. No, it's, it's a mind battle. It's how you think about the people that you love. And, by the way, the people that appear to be like enemies. See, the context of Philippians is not just this idea of like, Paul just saying, I want you just to be so loving that you just forego doctrine. No. He's saying it's because you love each other that there's accountability and partnership and fellowship that runs so deep that it's truth-driven. See, the reality is, is that when we think about fellowship, it's such a challenging thing because there are different times in the course of our Christian journey that we will meet people who we know are genuine believers, but there are certain areas of the way that they do certain things that we struggle with embracing. We know they're brothers and sisters in Christ, and yet at the same time, there are certain preferential components that we have a hard time getting together and agreeing on. See, the doctrinal things that matter the most is what is often called in history the fundamentals of the faith. The fundamentals are the doctrinal components, the things that belong to our salvation. We can't, we can't go astray on any of those things, but things that are various preferential components, if we treat them like a fundamental, all of a sudden so much more is at stake when we disagree with someone. We have to hold our preferences with humility and grace so that together we could be one and focus on the very thing that God intends us to be focused on. We'll often have a degree of fellowship to the degree that we can agree doctrinally. But this fellowship aspect is absolutely critical in the life of the body. Think of how important it was to Paul when he says something like 2 Corinthians 6.14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? You think he was quite serious about this fellowship thing? You better believe it. Because if all of a sudden you think you can play fast and loose with what the Christian community holds so dearly, which is first and foremost the truths of the living God, that Paul says are the pillar and the ground of the truth, and the practice of those truths, we have to be committed to those to hold each other responsible because this is what body life is about, by the way, is about a commitment of accountability, doctrinally and practically. I mean, how would you like it if all of a sudden you, if somehow Satan in your, own, in your own life got a hold of your heart for a brief series of time and you started to head towards the cliff and everyone in the body knew that you were heading there and yet no one went to your rescue? I don't want to be part of a community like that. I want to be a part of a community who's constantly sending out people on rescue missions. Like, go get them. We cannot let them live in a way that they won't find joy and purpose and meaning. And Paul displays that in his prayer, saying, I'm so thankful and I am filled with joy because of your partnership, first and foremost, in the gospel. From the first day until now, and I love what he says as he continues, he moves right on to element number two, not just as thankfulness, but Paul displays such an incredible assurance that they could never give themselves. And he says this verse that is so near and dear to us when it comes to our assurance of salvation. He says, I'm sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There are many times where it's very difficult to have a level of personal assurance for many people. If we had to have a raise of hands this morning of different people who, in the course of their Christian journey, struggled with whether, am I sure that I'm a believer? I want to be a believer. Did I say the right things? Did I say the prayer the way the person told me to say the prayer? Did I, did I do it the way the, the teacher, when I was younger, said it? What if I'm not? You, you often have many times where these occasions exist. Paul says I'm a sh he's so thankful because their, his thankfulness for them, knowing he will one day see them, whether he sees them in person or whether he sees them in heaven, that one day he, they will be together again. And he says, I'm sure of it, I'm confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. Now stop there for a moment. Circle he, highlight he, underline he. It's not a you. You didn't begin the work. You could never sustain the work. It's all about him from beginning to end. If it wasn't, there would be no assurance possible. People will struggle often with this understanding of assurance. One of the ways that people struggle with it when they ask themselves, when they struggle it, when, when they're asking themselves this. They think about it and they think, well, what if it's about how I'm doing, all the works that I do? Do you realize if all of a sudden you start focusing on all the things you think you have to do as a Christian and that that is what holds you secure in Christ, all of a sudden you lose the assurance? Because what do you do? You can never do enough. And you're so afraid that if you miss something and you, you didn't you know, dot an I or cross a T and you become so fearful. I watch this in young people. I watch this in some of my own children. Did I, did I say it right, Dad? I remember when my kids were really little and they would come and say, I, I said it, Dad, and like, am I saved? Like, they want my parental affirmation that they did it all right. But the best I can do for them is to say, as long as you agree with what the living God has written, you will have the greatest amount of security. It's not what I think, it's what he thinks. And I can focus that little heart's attention on, well, do you realize, do you believe what this says? Well, who said that? Well, God did. Well, can we trust him? You better believe we can. And they start to begin to start not focusing on their own good works. But if you focus on that, you'll be led astray. Another time when people struggle with assurance is when they're in active sin. 1 John 3, 6 says this, No one abides, who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now this is an idea of act of deliberate nature that you do not care about what God says and you will sin trying to find purpose and meaning and value in your sin. It doesn't mean that you are, as a Christian, don't, off, don't at times struggle with sin. But to the degree that you take that sin struggle seriously, and if you lose the battle more than you win it, guess what often happens? You lose a level of your own assurance. Because you'll say this to yourself, how can a Christian keep doing this? Now, you're right. A Christian shouldn't keep doing things that are sinful. And they should start to make a pattern of living that is more righteous-filled. we got to grow in our dependence 
as we look at our Lord Jesus Christ and say, he's done it for me. All of a sudden, when we're not bearing fruit, it all of a sudden tempts us to say, well, is it about me? If I did this, then I'd feel better. It's not about how you feel, because salvation is a fact. It's not, just, it's not a feeling alone. It comes with feelings. I hope you're excited about your salvation. But first, it's a fact. You believe in the truths of the gospel, and then you experience a life change of the gospel. Very different. Someone will often say, well, I don't remember the details of my conversion. What if I don't remember all the little words? Or they'll say, I just don't remember what I prayed. I was so young and I was in a Christian household. Can I just tell you, it, what, can you what can you affirm right now about what the truth says? You can go back to the truth time and time again and say, no, no, no. doesn't matter what I, the, the words, does it agree with what the truth says? And if you can agree with the truth, you will regain that level of assurance that Paul displays to the Philippians. He who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ. And when you're looking at this verse, please make, make, uh, uh, make, make sure that you're thinking about this. What is this day of Christ Jesus? See, all the time in the Old Testament, you talk about the day of the Lord, but that's not what this is. The day of Christ is the 2 Corinthians 5.10, the judgment seat of Christ, that all will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and will receive that which is done in their body. Guess what? Whether it's good or whether it's bad. That's the time when you give an account before the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why Paul is so adamant about displaying this to them. Because it's not only just a prayer of thanksgiving filled with joy, but it's a reminder of their confirmation about who they are in Christ. Do you know other believers who struggle with that at different times in their life? I do. Christians who all of a sudden begin to waver, thinking that purpose and meaning and value is generated by the culture instead of by God. We have a way that we can have camaraderie in the body to say, let me help you. Let me show you the truth. That's why this is such an, a, a precious reality to the, to the Philippian believers. Because they were secured in Christ. They weren't secured in Paul. And Paul knew that. Then he goes on in verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way. I love this because he's simply recognizing his own moral disposition. Like when, when I think about people in the way that I'm supposed to think about them, and I'm filled with joy, I have a moral obligation before the God of heaven to go, I so love them. It is right. Even if at times someone has said something to you, they haven't made you feel the greatest, but they are still an image bearer of God and a member of the community, the duty is to resolve it. We will get to that in Philippians. But the focus is, this is your brother, this is your sister. We can't live like that. This personal affection, it's morally accurate. And then he says, it's because I hold you in my heart. I mean, he's using the word heart to, to really undergird this idea of the affectional capacity that image bearers have. We don't just know people are believers, but we know them and then we get to love them. Like, it, there's just so much involved. And he says, now my heart is overflowing with this essence of love. It's morally consistent. 
When, when is this possible? One, he's, he's thankful for it because they were partakers of grace. They got the same salvation he got. They were partakers of suffering. Don't you suffer with people? He said, I'm so thankful for this, and, and, I'm, and my affection is so stirred within me that I look at your salvation, and I say, oh, I love you're a believer. It's like when you find out you're talking to someone, and all of a sudden you find out they're a believer. It's like there's just something that clicks, like, you, me, yeah, us. I love it. It's like that stranger, in the, you're like, you immediately have this instant bond. Like, I love Christ too. Like, who are we going to tell about this? The affectional capacity ought to be stirred in your heart, whether it's thinking about salvation of a brother and sister in Christ or your own, or about the suffering of other believers in Christ. Because the Philippian believers reciprocated this, and they sent Epaphroditus to Paul to say, I know, you're thankful for us, but man, we're thankful for you. And it was just like, thank you, thank you, and Okay, we got to get beyond this at some point, but I love you. And he was also thankful for their support, the support of the defense of the gospel. Someone to stand firm with. I can only imagine on various occasions when you're out and many of you are witnessing for Jesus Christ and, you're, and at times you're doing it either two, you know, two by two and you're going and you're sharing Christ, you're thinking, we're supporting each other. Like Paul was thankful for that. His affections were stirred for the grace, for the salvation, the suffering, and the support. He continues and he just says, you know, in verse 8 he says, For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is the agape love that was put on display of Jesus Christ who would hang on a tree and say, Father, forgive these for they don't know what they're doing. I want to love them with the affection of Christ, and I hope that that is your heart's longing. Element number three. Notice this, that the love would abound more and more. Like, it's like when you see your kids do something right out of like the first 10 times of doing it wrong, but on the 11th time they got it right. And you're so excited for that one time. You're like, do that more. Do that thing more. Paul sees the gospel working in them, and he says, it's now my plea for you. Keep doing it. Don't get tired of it. See, because this is the problem, is over the course of our Christian life, it's like, yeah, but being thankful and joy-filled is hard. It's like, how do I put together being joy-filled and suffering? It's possible because joy is not a feeling. It's this deep-seated perspective of your standing before God that erupts in, in this, this disposition of the heart that although everything else could be falling apart, you have this one thing that will never let go of you. That's our assurance. He said, let your love abound more and more and more with, in this kind of way, in knowledge and in all discernment. Make it truth-driven. Believe the right things together. Discern the right things together. The way to judge one thing, the value of one thing to another, that's what discernment is. You're able to look at the world in a Christian community and say, yeah, we agree that's wrong. Oh, we agree that's right. 
That's discernment. It's the application of the truth that we know. For this reason, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless, and here it is again, for the day of Christ Jesus. Brothers, sisters, whether we go and be with the Lord today, tomorrow, or the day that, the, the moment that Christ returns to take us all home to be with you, the goal of our Christian walk today is to stand pure and holy and blameless before a living God who can say to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Filled with the fruits of righteousness that come through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God the Father. He fills us up with all this thanksgiving and joy and all of these pleas. And it really just begs the question, what are we supposed to do about all that? Let me ask you a few things as we close. How thankful of a person are you when you pray? How many people do you deliberately put on your prayer list just that you just want to thank God for their involvement in your life? Husbands, wives, moms, dads, how often do you thank each other for God's work that is going on in your life? Because you're often the recipient of the good graces of the other. You know, we often have to correct and challenge and discipline our children at various times, and we could say, no, no, I think when my kids were little, I think that's the, the first word that they said, no. <laughs> well, you're getting it. But how many times do we say, son, daughter, there's just some things about you that I am just so thankful that I see God doing. Do you know how important that is in the life of a, of a, of a son or daughter to step back and say, man, my mom and dad, they, they're excited about what's going on in my life. Build that kind of unity. When's the last time you sent a thank you card to somebody or an email just to tell somebody how thankful you are for them? Say, you just mean so much, and all of a sudden, all of this affection starts coming out, and you, you, know, you remind yourself, it's like, oh, this is what he used to say to me. Like, I love you so much. That should be happening on a regular basis. How well are you loving people, specifically people in the body of the chapel? I hope there's not anyone that looks around and goes, love you, love you, love you, not so much you, you, you. If that's what's going on, something's wrong. You've got to get with that person and say, we've got to figure this out so that you know that you're united in the love of Christ and your union with Christ. Don't let that slip away and just think, well, love covers a multitude of sins, so if we just don't talk about it and time heals all wounds. No, it does not. It festers into bitterness and nastiness and thanklessness and joylessness. Don't let that be you. Abound in love, Christian. Do it more and more. Finding yourself saying, as a member of the chapel, maybe if you're not a member of the chapel, you, maybe this first step is like, I want to be part of this body. And that's where you start. And then if you are a member of the body, you say to yourself, you know what? How can I abound more and more in the life of the chapel? Where are the needs that I could step into and meet? Can I teach a Sunday school class? Can I help with youth? Can I be a volunteer at an event? What can I do to help be part and united with this body? Let your love abound more and more as you are filled 
with the level of righteousness. And I would just challenge you, even as you think about being filled, take Galatians 5 or 1 Corinthians 13 and ask yourself, where is it that I need to grow in love? Where is my love? If I measure it up to 1 Corinthians 13 and write down, I need to be more slow in this, I need to love this kind of way. This is where I struggle. Or I need this fruit of the Spirit and here's what I plan to do about it. Take the revelation and the information that you received and put it to work in application and your heart will be so stirred as you watch one another grow in Christ that you will begin to pray with thankfulness and joy and you will see that be filled with the power that brings unity to a body of people that is so inextricably diverse that no one of us could create that, that we will be forced to say, someone did that. And it's our Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, we'll stand in heaven, in heaven together with the most diverse body we could ever imagine, singing praises to the living God. And that's the day we keep moving forward, each and every day, living in a way that is pleasing to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Paul's heart attitude that is put on display that reveals such an incredible desire for unity but it started in his heart, in his relationship with you. He just loved you, Lord. We want to love you that way. We want to love people that way. Lord, we, we can never do that on our own. We need your help so bad so that we can bring honor and glory to you that we would be worthy, Lord, as we wait for you. In your name we pray, amen.